were driving. He was sitting next to me in the front seat. We were just north of Washington, D.C., and traffic slowed to a crawl. Uh, we couldn't figure out what was going on. Was it an accident? We got up to a certain spot. Actually, I think we had just come out of a tunnel, and right in front of us were two cars in the middle of a three-lane highway. Two cars were kind of side-by-side, side, kind of pointing toward each other, and then out in front of the two cars were two men, and they were slugging one another. They were in a fist fight right in the middle of the highway. And Al looked at me and he said, well, I grew up in New York and I've never seen that before. And I thought, that's got to be bad. And you have two guys slugging it out. Well, road rage is terrible. And if you've ever been in a situation where somebody's lost their temper on the highway, I hope it wasn't you. You ever been in that situation? You know how unnerving it can be. It's much worse when you have road rage at church. I don't mean two church members fighting over a parking spot or even fighting over a particular seat in the auditorium. What I'm talking about is the kind of hurtful conflict people who have confessed their love for Jesus Christ and each other are now expressing that love by hurting one another for whom Christ died. And friends, it happens all the time. This is not uncommon. And I, I was thinking of the various things that church members fight over. I'm not saying this happens here, but I just want to read to you some of these things because when you read them out loud, they sound a little bit ridiculous. Here are some of the things over which church members have been known to bicker. The color of carpet, chairs or pews, chairs or pews, filing cabinets, sofas, paint on the walls, minor financial issues such as who has access to the church copier or what copies are being made a budget being off by a few dollars. I actually heard of a church once that was off by a dollar. And after a num uh, about a half an hour bickering, somebody pulled a dollar out of their pocket and said, here, we're done. Let's just move on. Questions over the purchase of needed items and then who gets to use those items in the church. And then, of course, there's all sorts of neutral cultural issues like beards on men. I guess you wouldn't say beards on women. That wouldn't be, that'd be weird. But pants, right? And worship schedules. What song is sung first or last or the order? Or should we sing happy birthday to people in church? Or even what kind of grape juice is being used for communion? One church was upset and divided over the fact that somebody went out and got cran grape instead of grape juice. And then there's, of course, those doctrinal issues, and I put it in air quotes because they're almost never really doctrinal. They're just applications of culture or brand new made-up doctrines. That does actually happen. Uh, there's a split that's going on in our church culture uh, in America over some of these, and then, of course, politics. And when Christians fight over these things, people get hurt. And God, God gets hurt too. Did you ever think that your words hurt God? That is, when Christians fight, it makes God 
sad. The Spirit of God is saddened by hurtful words. Now, look again at Ephesians 4 and notice that we are living a new life in Christ. Right at the beginning of the chapter, Paul appeals to them that they should live like Christians should live. We should live like Christians should live. And there are two appeals here. The first appeal comes at the beginning of the chapter. It's in verses 4, or chapter uh, 4, verses 1 through 3. And Paul appeals to them to live in keeping with the gospel, where he says, I, therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you. There's that appeal. I beg you that you will order your life worthy of the calling, calling to salvation, wherewith you are called, in a certain way, lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, so that your purpose is to keep unity in the Spirit. So our lifestyle should match our calling in Christ. They should go together like hand in glove. The word worthy here is the idea of suitability. So the way we live our lives should fit. It should be suitable to the way the gospel has called us to salvation. Now, you understand what suitability is because when you see things that aren't suitable, it strikes you, it shocks you, it's weird. It's like a person wearing a full three-piece suit, vest included, to go swimming. That would be weird. Or a person wearing a bathing suit to go to something formal like the opera or the ballet or even a church service. That would be weird. It'd be shocking. It'd be strange. It'd be unsuitable. That's what you would say. And that's what he's saying here. Our lifestyle should be suitable in the sense that it fits the gospel. And in order to accomplish that, we must have the character of Jesus and the qualities that he puts here. Humility, patience, forbearance and love, those qualities are Jesus' qualities. He was humble beyond all else. He had humility. He was patient beyond all else. He was patient. And he had this forbearance and love of others. And our goal, if we strive to have those qualities, our goal then is that we, just like God, we have this desire for unity in the body of Christ. Where disunity occurs is when somebody, or maybe both buddies, right, are being unchristlike, And then you have disunity. Now that's the first appeal. The second appeal, you look down in verse 17, Paul appeals, he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. So it's not the same word beseech in the sense of appeal, but he's, he's giving that sense of an appeal here. He says, okay, what's, what's my desire for you? I'm testifying in the Lord that you would not walk. There's that same idea of walk as in verse 1. The idea of walking. Now you walk worthy of the gospel in verse 1. Now you walk not as Gentiles or unbelievers walk. So don't order your life like unbelievers in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, that's a lot of words, right? All pushed together, smooshed together. Here's what Paul is saying, I think. He's saying, order your life considering God. 
unbelievers don't do that. They don't think about God at all. Paul calls this the futility or the vanity of their minds. The entire thinking process of an unbeliever does not really consider what the true God believes about their behavior. It's just not part of <clears throat> their values. It's not part of their thinking process. They don't go through their should I or shouldn't I based on what does God think. I mean, and, and we as believers, we should be considering what God thinks. Is this God's will for me? James talks about that. The two businessmen are going into a town and they say, we're going to go there. We're going to buy and sell and get gain. Is there anything wrong with that? No. That's business. I mean, what kind of businessmen would say, we're going to go into a town and we're going to lose everything we have? It'd be terrible business, right? But the problem with the businessmen isn't their business. It's the fact that they didn't say, if the Lord will. They never considered God's will in the matter. So Christians considering God all the time because unbelievers don't think about God. In fact, unbelievers, their knowledge lacks true wisdom. They just don't have that. See, they're lost in the darkness of sin. They're actually separated from the spiritual life that comes with God. They're separated from God's wisdom so that their hearts are literally hardened by sin. This is how an unbeliever thinks. And unbeliever thinking results in unbeliever behavior. Now we can commit unbeliever behavior, right? We can do that. We sin all the time. But when we do that, we're going against our true nature. That's really the next section of Paul's passage here in Ephesians 4. We're going against our true nature. We have put off the old man. We've put on the new man. We're being renewed in the spirit of our minds. So when we sin, we're going against that true nature. When unbelievers sin, they're just going along with who they really are. So unbeliever thinking results in unbeliever behavior. And, and he explains why their conscience is dead to spiritual sensitivity. In fact, I almost sense a little bit of a play on words here. In Not necessarily words, but ideas. He's kind of... Um, um, the only word I can think of is juxtapose. And I'm sorry, it's a really big word. He's just putting them in opposition to each other, okay? Does, does that make it easier to understand? I don't... Juxtapose is probably easier. Yeah, anyway, they're, they're in opposition to each other. So he says they don't have any sensitivity, but he says, but, but they're also consumed by sensuality. So they don't have any sensitivity. They're completely callous to their sinfulness. They feel no shame. You see that? They are past feeling, verse 19, given entirely over to all of these sins. It sounds just like Romans 1. They've been entirely given over to sin. So they have no sensitivity that what I am doing right now is wrong. So, so apparently early this morning, a man who is an evil man walked into a place in Colorado Springs and killed people with a gun. Did you read that story? It's in the news, right? But nobody is actually talking about that all the people who were there were also doing things that they should not have done according to God and his word. They were also sinning. Now, it didn't mean they should be shot to death by that guy with the gun. Of course not. And none of us would ever say that, I hope. But we all understand that, that 
The world doesn't see it that way. They don't see those things as being sinful at all because they are callous to it. They can't actually even feel it. When I, when I go to the doctor now because of my diabetes, they want to check my feet all the time. I tell them my feet are fine. I know I'm going to someday lose sensitivity in my feet, but right now they're fine. And they go, no, it's, I got to check it. And I know, you know, I used to think it was for money, but the VA does it. So I don't know why the VA would do it. It's free. So I have to take off my shoes and socks. And then they take this little pinch. You feel that? Yes, that, yes, that. Oh, you didn't touch me that time. Okay, ha ha. Okay, tried to trick you. Yes, I have sensitivity in my feet, I told you. But you take spiritual things and you touch them and they don't feel it at all. But while they have no sensitivity, look, they have sensuality because they are lascivious and they work on cleanness with greediness. So while they are spiritually insensitive to truth, they're at the same time incredibly sensual. And that word of sense is just kind of in opposition. So they've abandoned themselves to a lawless spirit. And now they're shamelessly practicing uncleanness before God. They're just not embarrassed about it at all. Now, Christians shouldn't be that way, right? This is not how we learned Christ. And so if you think about what Paul is saying, right? You should live like Christians should live. I know that sounds a little trite, but that's what he's saying. Live like Christians should live. This is how you've learned Christ. This is it. Verse 20, this is how you've learned Christ. I've kind of turned that negative into a positive. So if so be that you heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So we have a completely different way of living because of what Jesus has taught us through his word. Our learning begins with our hearing. That is, we hear it and receive it. That's James chapter 1. We receive with meekness the engrafted word. We're receiving the word of God. And Jesus teaches. His teaching is totally different from what the world teaches. His doctrine is different. His philosophical orientation is completely rearranged. And when you learn Christ, <clears throat> that you have put off the old man and you have put on the new man, and are being renewed in your mind. That renewing is a new worldview, new goals, a new direction in life, new ambitions. It's all new. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. All old things, his old desires, that's all passed away. All the new things that are in Christ are his desire. Thus, we learned in Christ a different way of living. My knowledge is new. I have a new way of thinking. And now I understand things completely different than I did before. So because, now that, that, that's all context. And I gave you all that. We've been through this. And some of you are thinking, I heard this sermon like six weeks ago. Well, parts of it. There were new parts in there. But yes, okay. Context. Because what I want you to see now and point number two is really where we're landing. Still a little more context, but we'll land there eventually, right? Number two, our new life in Christ means a new approach to the way we speak. Our words are different. Now that's pretty practical. 
In fact, it's really practical. Because we have a new life in Christ, that was the first point, that means the new life includes new words. And I think this is what Paul is saying here. Christian speech is critical for living a new life in Christ. If you want to stand up and say, I am a Christian, you can only do that if you actually have new words, words that are different from the words the world uses. I don't mean a different language. Obviously, let, let's, let's get past um, silly arguments, right? We're not talking about a completely new language. It's the way we use the language we have. It's just different from the world. And the two differences that he gives, and I've alliterated them for you so that you'll remember them, okay? I don't often alliterate, but here I've alliterated them for you. We should not use hiding words. That's verse 25. Don't lie. Stop lying. I'm going to call those hiding words. Because when a person lies, what they're trying to do is hide something from somebody else. That's essentially what lying is. You're hiding. Now, I know some people are nosy pants. Okay, I just know it's just in their nature to be nosy and you're kind of stuck. Do I lie or do I tell the person what they want to know, even though they're just being, he's just being nosy, she's just being nosy, right? Well, I usually try to say, well, when I was younger, I would just say M-Y-O-B and uh, you know what M-Y-O-B is, right? Mind your own business. Um, but I learned as I was growing up, that people don't respond very well to that. So now I think mind your own business, and what I generally do is try to turn the conversation to something else. And if they can't, if they won't, uh, then I'll usually say, look, hey, I just want you to understand that uh, I'm just not going to answer that question at all. And, uh, and if, if they can't get past that, then maybe I'll say something like, um, <clears throat> you need to mind your own business. Uh, I try not to start with that. But the truth is, and I use that word on purpose, the truth is we have an obligation when it comes to just the general activity of life to be truthful with each other. And so it's imperative, he says in verse 25, not to lie to one another. Rather, it's imperative that we speak the truth one to another. You see that in verse 25? Now, not only do we have a problem with hiding words, but we should not use, here's the second thing, hurtful words, verse 29. Now, this was actually the last thing we looked at before tonight was these hurtful type of words. We should not speak. The word here is useless or worthless words to each other. Instead, what ought to come out of our mouths, that it's imperative that our words are governed by grace. So that, like brick upon brick, we are actually building up the other person in Christ. So I have a new life in Christ. My new life in Christ includes the words that I speak. Okay? And Christian speech is critical for that living, living out that new life in Christ. Here's where we're at then. That's all been context. So if you've been following this, I've given you point one, A, B, point two, A. Now we're finally at the meat of verse 30, which is worthless speech hurts God as much as it hurts others. This is why we don't use it. So really, verse 30 is kind of summarizing what we got in verse 25 and verse 29. He's summarizing that. 
He's saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby or in whom you are sealed to the day of redemption. When we use worthless words, we not only fail to build up the person who hears them, we are actually grieving the Holy Spirit. And that's not good. And in fact, if you look at the verse, what's the first word in verse 30? For me, it's a conjunction. Is it a conjunction in your Bible? I, I have a conjunction. And. What, what Paul is doing is linking what he just said, don't use worthless words, to this next statement. The, these are not two separate thoughts. These thoughts absolutely go together. There is no question Paul meant it that way. So it's not like, okay, don't lie, don't steal, don't, don't uh, um, do all these things. He's talking about this, and, and don't grieve the Spirit of God. That's like another thing. And then it's not like Paul's doing that. What Paul's actually doing is saying this, look, you don't use hurtful words because it grieves God. When we say words that hurt other people, we're actually making God sad. And just like uncontrolled anger, you find there at back, be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Do you see the little tail end of that statement? In verse 27, neither give place, don't give a foothold to the devil, to the slanderer. Just like you've got that little tail end, talking about a spiritual being who is involved in that process of anger. So we have the same idea here. Just like uncontrolled anger can cause a foothold for the devil in the life, so uncontrolled words make God sad. And why? Why is he saddened by our words? And I think the answer to that is because the spirit who brings the body of Christ together is saddened when one body part begins to hurt another body part. I mean, I mean when, when a person is, is uh, mentally ill, whether it's serious or not, um, oftentimes their body parts stop working together. They actually do or say things that, that is destructive to themselves because uh, their body parts are, are not working in, in coordinate with each other, but actually disjoined. You know, it'd be weird to see a person who just smacked himself in the head or kicked himself with his leg or that, that kind of thing. And even some very serious counseling things when you've got people who are cutting themselves, that kind of thing. That, that's where body parts are actually working against other body parts. You, you, we see that and we say that's not how it should be. In this case, I, under, I want you to understand when, when a lady in the church and another lady in the church, and it could be a lady and a lady, a man and a lady, a man and a man, right? Have we covered everybody? It could be a child and an adult. It can be an adult and a child. It can be a child with a child. It can be an adult with an adult. It could be a senior with a senior or a senior with a... You understand. Anybody within the church, right? When, when that one body part begins to fight against the other body part, there is a, a, a kind of mental illness that is settled onto the body of Christ. And God is standing back and looking at that and he's just saying, no, 
That's not right. Because the Holy Spirit's job, if you go back, look again at verse 3. What is the Spirit doing in verse 3? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the what? In the what? The Spirit is bringing the church together. That's what the, the Spirit is looking. I brought you all together. How are you fighting it out with each other? And when the body of Christ is being torn apart by our words, the Spirit who brings the church together is saddened. You see, ultimately, disunity is an assault on God's work in us. In fact, the next phrase almost makes that statement. We are all redeemed in Christ. Jesus saved us, all of us who know him, from our sin. And in that sense, we all stand at the cross the same. Nobody stands at the cross a little better than somebody else who stands at the cross, right? We all stand the same. I stood at the cross, a sinner needing redemption, needing salvation. You stood at the cross, a sinner needing salvation, needing redemption. In fact, if you think about it this way, it's like we're all Israelites in the Old Testament and, and we had to be rescued from Egypt, all of us. If you're not rescued, you're still in Egypt. You're, you're still back there in chains. And I think that idea uh, from the Old Testament is very similar to what's being said. In fact, there's an echo here of this Old Testament concept. And in fact, Isaiah, uh, near the end of his, his book, is kind of bringing out some of these themes that, that God has rescued us all from sin, similar to the way God rescued Israel out of Egypt, and he saved us to the day of judgment. His sealing, the Spirit's sealing in effect, is the sense of permanence to the day of redemption. That's our guarantee that we're saved. We have the Holy Spirit of God. So think about this. When I use a hurtful word against you, or you use a hurtful word against me, what's happening is one person who's no different in need of salvation is saying something against somebody else who is in no different need of salvation. And instead of standing at the cross the same, what ends up happening is we stand at the cross thinking somehow we're better than somebody else for whom Christ died. And that's not cool. To speak bad words against another person, particularly in judgment or condemnation of them, is to speak against the work of Jesus in redeeming them from sin. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of confrontation, the gentle confrontation that Galatians 6 is talking about. I'm not talking about the, the need to remove the, the, the beam out of my eye so that I can see clearly to remove the speck out of someone else's eye. That kind of thing happens. I understand that. And, I, and, and when I preach, I am really aware of my own shortcomings because here I am, you're probably thinking, the pastor's always trying to take the beam out of my eye. Is he ever thinking about himself? Yes, all the time. Okay. And, and when you get kids, some of you understand this, and you discipline a child, the Holy Spirit of God, while you're disciplining that child, is saying, you dirty, rotten sinner, you're just as bad, you're worse. You know, it's terrible. I hate it. And I don't have to do it anymore, so I'm glad. Yeah. 
Because I'm not disciplining grandkids. I'm just not going to do it. But what I'm talking about is actually when one, when one believer is actually judging or being condemnatory toward another believer. You violated some grand, important issue that I have made important in my mind, and you violated that. And now you are going to hear my wrath. And do you know what? Somebody else is listening. It's the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, why, oh why, oh why are you saying those words about the person I saved from hell? And ultimately those words, it just harms the goal of unity in the body of Christ. Have you ever noticed this whole idea, take off the old man, put on the new man, live like you're supposed to live, this whole concept. Have you ever noticed that all the sins are body sins? I mean, you would assume there's lots of other sins out there, right? I mean, there are vice lists in the New Testament, and it gives all these vices that people do. In fact, some of them here, you almost have a mini vice list here in verse 19, lasciviousness, uncleanness, and greediness. You, you have this, the vice lists in the New Testament where it talks about all the sins. Those really aren't the ones mentioned here. Lying, stealing, angry words, an unforgiving heart, spirit. I mean, you, you go through these, these sins here, and do you know what they all are? They're all body sins. It's hard to be unified when we're angry with one another, when, when we lie to each other, when we steal from one another, right? It's just hard to be unified when, when you have an unforgiving spirit toward each other. And so all of these are body sins. And if you sin this way, you're not only sinning against God, but you're sinning against the body of Christ. And so in application, let me just give you a couple of ideas. Be careful what you say to other people. Be really careful. And ask yourself these questions. Is what I'm saying pleasing God? God's hearing it too. Is he saying, I'm pleased by those words? I mean, you, you know what it's like. You're driving down the highway. It's a 70 mile an hour highway. You're driving at about 77 miles an hour, right? Because we've all been told that the police will give us 10 miles, right? You know that, right? Some teenagers are going, really? Yeah, so, you know. So here you are, you're driving a little fast down the highway. And then you see sitting over on the side of the road, you come over the crest of a hill and there's a policeman. What do you do instinctively? What do you do? <laughs> I mean, you see, you look up and you see brake lights on the highway, just like this beautiful Christmas tree. And all these red lights everywhere as everybody's breaking because they don't want to get a ticket, right? So when you're speaking, say to yourself, I'm talking to this person and standing right next to him is the Holy Spirit. Kind of maybe, <laughs> maybe try to visualize, visualize that in your mind. And as you're saying those words, say, Holy Spirit, he's listening too. He's in on the conversation. The second thing you need to ask yourself is not only will my words please God, but will my words encourage other people? Does, does this encourage people? Does this actually build him up in the faith? 
Does this, does this make him a stronger Christian? Well, th- is this something that will inspire hope and make him want to go on and serve Christ more? Um, one, of the, one of the best things that happened to me as a very young preacher, before I started this church, is, is uh, I, was, I was a young preacher and I heard an older preacher say, every sermon should inspire hope. And and I, I was really good at the sermons that were kind of beat you down sermons, you know? I mean, I was really good at those. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You know, those are real encouraging. Well, amen. Thank you, brother. Those are easy to preach, right? But it doesn't inspire any hope. And what I found is, is that even my words up here, I need to be encouraging to other people. So I really do try, even in the most negative passage, Say, how can I engender hope with what I'm saying? We should do that. And then finally, will my words make the gospel shine? Remember, all this is tracing back to chapter 4, verse 1. Walk worthy of the Lord, of the calling wherewith you've been called. It's all about the gospel. It, it, will other people hear what I say and go, man, that guy's been saved by Jesus. It's gospel. He's speaking words that are just shining a light on the fact that he's a, a new creature in Christ. Or will people see and hear your words and go, that sounds kind of like the world. Because, friends, when we talk, we're not the only ones in the room. Somebody else is there, and he's listening. And our words should make him glad, not sad. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.